Hi everyone, Mike from the London Fungus Network. We're here today doing some urban mushroom hunting. We're in Waltham Forest, East London, outside this office block. There's some people in there looking at their computers, but I'm looking at the ground. Right, so we're just on the way to the woods, but we're a bit delayed because we keep finding mushrooms, but not just any mushrooms, urban mushrooms. Like, let's go and have a gander. So it's black, it's knobbly, it's gnarly. It's almost, it's like a, a flying saucer that's been cut in half. I like this big disc that is just protruding from this stone wall outside their front garden. Exactly, on a busy road. And probably a lot of people don't take any notice of this, but um, I always keep an eye out on this every time I'm walking down this street, just to uh, see how it's getting on, pay my respects, spread some spores, and um, you know, it, it just gives me a buzz to find a mushroom every day. I'm Jess Jorgensen, and this is Running With Mushrooms. I'm exploring the industry and culture of mushrooms around the world, and today I'm hanging out with Mike of London Fungus Network. We geek out about urban fungi, we discuss the cultural fears and tensions around fungi and foraging, and afterwards we head out on a little mushroom foray in urban East London. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thanks so much for having us, Mike. We're in Waltham Forest in East London. I'm chatting with Mike from London Fungus Network. And I've been following the London Fungus Network since 2020, which I think is when you started. Exactly. Yeah. And I've been quite excited because as somebody who lives in London, seeing the words London, fungus and network in an organization was quite a cool thing. In the beginning, I assumed that I couldn't really engage with mushroom culture unless I lived like in the countryside. So I was very excited to see an urban mushroom network and to see the types of events that you're involved in and running and managing the workshops that you do, the courses, etc. So thanks for having us. Do you want to kick off by giving a quick introduction? Who are you? And where does London Fungus Network fit into the mushroom world? So I'm Mike. I founded London Fungus Network in the summer of 2020. So that was during the first ever lockdown that we had due to COVID. So I joined a initiative called London National Park City. I was one of their first 50 volunteer rangers. And so London National Park City, so its aim is to make London a greener, wilder and healthier place and engage people with green spaces and nature in, in London, but also in, in other cities across the country and across the world. Um, and I thought, you know, what could be wilder uh, than a mushroom? You know, in many ways, you know, people don't, don't think of mushrooms as belonging in a city because they don't really conform to the kind of orderly kind of nine to five lifestyle that a lot of us associate with living in a big urban area. But London actually is a really mushroomy place. And a lot of cities are really mushroomy places. People would ask me, oh, do you actually find mushrooms in London? Um, like scratching heads, you know, like do you, you know, as if you need to go to um, the countryside or a national park or some kind of wilderness. But mushrooms and wild mushrooms and fungi, they're all around us. They're not just some slimy grey things on the edge of a a full English breakfast or things that you buy in a supermarket but wild mushrooms are all around us and I find mushrooms in a city 365 days a year. 
you know, that's something that's fairly recent to me. You know, most of my life, yeah, I was not aware that mushrooms were around or, you know, I felt that maybe there was something um, to steer clear of, like something, something that were a bit, um, a, bit, a bit dangerous or hostile. How did you get into mushrooms in the first place? Like, what's your story? I mean, originally it was through foraging and wild food. So maybe about uh, nine or ten years ago, um, I went on a couple of foraging courses, like guided walks, focusing on plants. And then from that, I learned about, you know, some leafy plants, berries, nuts, seeds, these kind of things. And then gradually got more and more interested in it. And then, you know, that became like a real, almost like an obsession. You know, I was learning about what new plant or berry is, you know, is in season. Um, but in all, in all the foraging books and all the foraging like, websites and Facebook pages, uh, you'd always see people posting pictures of, of, the, of these amazing mushrooms. But I could never get my head around them, you know. How do you... It seemed like an impenetrable world. Like you needed to be a wizard or have three PhDs to identify these things. So, um, And I tried, like, identifying a couple of mushrooms, not with the intention of eating them, but just in my local park, uh, going around... Yeah, I took them home and spent the whole of Sunday afternoon just scratching my head with field guides and not getting anywhere. And then, you know, I went on a couple of courses. With a bit of time, I was able to identify maybe two, three or four common edible mushroom species, like the Marismius oreadas, the fairy ring champignon, uh, which is a really good urban mushroom because it grows in a lot of amenity grasslands. So, say like football pitches, sports fields, that have been used for sport for, say, many decades, which is something you'll find in some of the bigger bigger parks in London, which means that they've had a lot of time for those fungi to colonise and grow and expand. As soon as I started learning about the ferrying champignon, I started seeing it everywhere. I saw it on a grass verge before a job interview, so I was almost late for the job interview because I was finding these mushrooms. <laughs> and then I was just seeing it, like, absolutely everywhere. And then, you know, from then it became... You know, I wanted to learn all the mushrooms, like all the edible mushrooms um, and then the poisonous mushrooms. And, not, and then it starts going to the non-edible mushrooms. And then if you're living in an urban or suburban area, then pretty quickly, like, you'll find that if you do find edible mushrooms, then it's like it's like um, it's by accident. You can't really go out there and you know, harvest that many just because habitats are fragmented or what you find is maybe in a dirty area like where it's polluted next to a road so forth so i just started learning about all the mushrooms or all the mushrooms that i would encounter and then that was it you know i like i i never looked back and it took me all around the country all around the world to like eastern europe to united states now i'm now i'm just a mushroom person like no looking back Amazing. So, so you mentioned gigs, um, events, etc. For anyone who's unaware, just describe all of the things that London Fungus Network does, as well as the London National Park City. So the aim of London Fungus Network is to connect people, to connect humans with the urban fungal kingdom or, or, or queendom. So we do this through, um, through events, fungus forays, fungus festivals, lectures, talks, workshops, a lot of collaborations with other people to provide people with ways of encountering fungi and nature in a, in a new way. So yeah, we run events and part of my motivation was also to put on events that I wanted to go to that just didn't exist. Yeah, that's brilliant. Can you give an example of one of those events? Maybe one that's coming up? 
So we've got an event coming up next weekend called Shroom Sunday. So it's our third annual Shroom Sunday, which is um, a family mushroom fun day slash mini festival at a, a nature reserve in Chingford. Uh, on the edge of East London. So we have things like fungus forays, guided walks with tree or insect experts, uh, workshops, how to grow mushrooms, forest school teachers, arts and crafts for children, but also fun stuff like prizes for the best uh, mushroom merch, costumes, and an open mic NYC. So mushroom inspired uh, performance, song, spoken word, poetry. So. We'd like to put, and I know it's a pun, but we like to put the fun into fungi. And mushrooms do have a way of like putting, putting smiles on people's faces. So that's something I like to do. All right. So you've got all these events going on. You've got Shroom Sunday coming up, which is really exciting. I've also seen that you do talks, for example, at the National Trust. Yeah, the Fungi Festival that's coming up. You're doing a talk on what are fungi really. Is a lot of your work involving education about what fungi are all about for people who aren't necessarily super into mushrooms already? I, I, I say there's a mix of people that come to our events. And you know, when I first started doing like, events and fungus forays, say three years ago, a lot of those people had an interest. They'd already had encounters of mushrooms through, through foraging or maybe psychedelics, and they wanted to expand it. Um, but more recently, um, get a lot of people coming to events um, who, you know, they're like 100, they're total newbies. Um, did a foray earlier this year in the winter, and there were people who'd never seen a wild mushroom before, or never knowingly seen a wild mushroom before. So um, it's a real, like, I mean, it's a real pleasure, but also a privilege to be able to guide people uh, towards their first encounters with, with a wild mushroom. So we had people uh, who were, looking at jelly ears um, or wood ears. So these are um, like fleshy ascomycete mushrooms that grow, they resemble a human or animal ear that grow on, um, on decaying branches. Uh, so yeah, I encourage people to touch them, tickle them, um, which is maybe something that would not, they would not do or would be deemed socially acceptable. But I, you know, I think, it, I think tickling jelly ears should be normalized. Every time I try and convince my friends and family to eat the jelly ears that I forage in a, in a soup or a stir fry, I don't know, I found sort of a mixed response. <laughs> but they definitely are a memorable mushroom, that I'll say. I love it, personally. I think jelly ears are great. In general, how do you find people are responding to fungi? And has that changed over the years? I'm seeing a lot more people who are mycologically curious. So they are open to, to having experiences and encounters with, with fungi, but they don't really necessarily know how to access, how to access the fungi. I mean, fungi and mushrooms, they're free. You know, they're all around us. Anyone can spot them, um, touch them, sniff them, pick them, but they can seem like they are maybe a bit out of reach or inaccessible or you need some kind of elite education. But you know, if, I can, if I can learn about them and learn what their names are and how to tell one mushroom from another, then, then anyone can. I agree. And I do think there can be those, um, those types of assumptions or perceptions if you're not involved in the mushroom industry of, you know, maybe it's not for me it's for people with a degree or it's for people who know a lot about science or know a lot about nature. What would you say to those people to encourage them to get involved and why should they get involved with mushrooms? 
um, I'd say, you know, why wouldn't you get involved with mushrooms? Like there's just so much, there's so much to learn about them. You know, you can go in so many different directions. Some people are just really happy to geek out on mushrooms, on, on, on the DNA sequencing, looking at spores under a microscope, citizen science recording, um, but that's not for everyone. It's a way of getting people out more into your local area, into green spaces or exploring other parts of the country. Um, you know, mushrooms are taking me on, on different locations that I never would have been to before. Um, you know, there's also you know, people who are interested in uh, like health benefits, nutrition. What mushrooms, or particularly wild mushrooms, can open up a whole new world of, of flavours. Um, the mushrooms that you'll find growing in the wild have an entirely different palette compared to anything that you'll buy, um, you'll buy in the shops or, or find it in a restaurant. You know, there's a spiritual dimension to mushrooms as well. Something that I've definitely, something that motivates me, and I, you know, I have, um, I've experienced. So there's so many, so many different things that uh, mushrooms can. Um, I was, I was going to say that we can get from mushrooms, but it's more like, you know, what what can mushrooms uh, teach us? What can they give us? I agree, and one of the things I've been researching a lot is this intersectionality of mushrooms and how. When you're into mushrooms, you're also into medicine or plants or food um, or trees or insects or just general ecology. And I think that's so interesting. I, I'd love to get your perspective on this, but I don't think I've met a, a mushroom person yet who isn't also into sort of all the other things that fungi interconnect with. Yeah, that's one thing that I love about the mushroom community is that so if you go to a mushroom event, so I went to uh, the Telluride Mushroom Festival. I've been there three times. In, uh, it's in Colorado. I went there for the first time in 2018. And there were people of all ages. There were children, parents, grandparents. There were scientists. There were psychonauts, psychedelic people, you know, people who published books and journal articles. And then there were just people who just enjoyed dressing up uh, as mushrooms, eating mushrooms, consuming them in different ways singing chants, we love mushrooms, and all these different things just in one place. And I was like, you know, it's, it's a very interdisciplinary discipline. Um, it brings, mushrooms do bring together people in, in, a certain, in a certain way that, you know, like, you know, plants are amazing and, you know, animals and birds and, be and bees and everything else. But there is just something different about mushrooms. And when you meet like a mushroomy person, then you know, you know that like you've, you've found your people. Yeah. Speaking of mushroomy people and Telluride, which attracts thousands of mushroomy people every year, is there anything that you experienced or learned at Telluride that helped to inspire the work that you're doing here? So I would say that the Telluride Mushroom Festival was one of my, uh, it was one of the milestones in, in my fungal journey. Um, and it certainly inspired me to come home and try and cultivate to try and cultivate a fungal, a fungal community here, because you know I can't, I, you know I don't live in, I don't live in Colorado. I can't go there every year. But yeah, it inspired me to come back here and try and create some of that community that I'd, I'd experienced, uh, I'd experienced over there. And the the energy and supportiveness of everyone over there was was just like uh, incredible. So like probably without the, the Telluride Mushroom Festival. And the support and network from London National Park City, like without those, probably the London Fungus Network wouldn't, uh, wouldn't exist. Do you feel that the London Fungus Network, uh, National Park City, the, the group and community and network that you're creating in London, do you feel like it is starting to feel like a solid 
thriving community? I feel like these things take, particularly communities, take um, a certain amount of time to to build and, and evolve and coalesce. But you know, I've made uh, like personal connections with other mushroom people who are, say, artists or uh, mushroom growers, you know, mycologists, recorders that I would not have been able to, I would not have met otherwise if it wasn't through like my events or their events or people approaching me wanting to collaborate and a lot of a lot of the events that, that the London Fungus Network does are collaborations uh, so we'll bring together people you know, with different offerings like whether it's someone like Oh My Shrooms who make medicinal mushroom chocolates or Fat Fox Mushrooms who uh, they teach people how to grow mushrooms at home um, like local artists who made a a sculpture of Prototaxetes, which is the prehistoric humongous fungus that grew up to nine, nine meters tall and before there are any plants or trees on, on the planet Earth. So really it is about like trying to cultivate a community and bringing people together for, for the love of mushrooms. You've been involved in this mushroom culture, as you say, for about nine, ten years. How have you seen the microculture evolve in the UK, but particularly in London over that time? Like for me, I've seen like a massive like step change in, in the last three or four years. There's way more people like growing mushrooms, either as a small business, as a startup, you know, just out of their own passion, foraging mushrooms, learning about them. You know, before that, I would really struggle to find events to go to or places where I could say like buy, even buy a mushroom t-shirt. And now you can find them on the high street at like all these high street retailers. But I found fungi and mycology quite inaccessible. You know, I could pay some money to go on a foraging course or go on a foray with maybe a BMS, a British Mycological Society affiliated group. But often it's individuals or small groups who are often working, just doing their own thing and working, working on their own. There weren't many opportunities just to meet other mycologically curious, like-minded people and come together like in, a, in an informal space. You know, when you're just, when you are curious or almost slash obsessive about these amazing organisms, you know, I, I, it made me and a lot of people I've met, you know, really hungry for, you know, you just wanna, you just wanna like absorb it all and learn. Um, but it's, it can be quite challenging to learn on your own, particularly if you are at an early stage in, in your fungal journey. So, but now there's like, you know, there's a lot of events happening, you know, not just London Fungus Network, but there's more people doing educational fungus forays all over, all over, not just London, but all over the country now. Seem to be more, more, more abundant and more popular. Absolutely, and um, I think it's this month, is it, that there's a big fungi-inspired installation at Kew Gardens as well. At the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, there's a queer nature event, which um, it's all about celebrating diversity in art, plants and fungi, which I think is pretty fun. Clearly mushrooms are, and mushroom products and offerings are becoming a lot more popular. As that happens and this mushroom industry grows very quickly, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing or a bit of both? Yeah, I think, you know, it can be a bit of both. And often, you know, always when something does become very popular, there can be risks associated with that. But, you know, I think overwhelmingly, you know, we are, as you say, we're having a mushroomy moment right now, like in London, in Britain and like other, other parts of the world too. Um, and this is just a great opportunity for more people to be exposed to mushrooms. You can buy mushroomy merch and things like this and, 
okay, maybe, yeah, there are people making money out of it, but I think there's worse things to make money out of than celebrating um, these amazing organisms, which have been, um, they've been overlooked or um, misrepresented for, you know, for, for hundreds of years. So I think seeing mushrooms become part of mainstream culture can only, can only be a good thing because uh, they help to normalize it and hopefully through that more people will become mycologically curious and buying a mug with mushrooms on it or a t-shirt you know that those small things can, you know they could be the the spore that germinates someone on their fungal journey i totally agree and as you say the more mainstream mushrooms become the more people see it as a viable career path or a, a way to spend their time the more money the industry makes, the more the industry grows, the more people have opportunities to get into it and spend more time with it. I had a really interesting chat with Marius Levy of the Fungi Foundation recently and learned a lot about how mushroom education can actually facilitate in their conservation as well. The more the general public are just aware of fungi, what they do for the ecosystem, what they do for the planet, for us and our own health, the more we can conserve them. So I agree, I think it's a good thing. Let's talk about foraging and the increase of popularity of foraging. As you say, perhaps nine, ten years ago, there might have been some individual groups. Now, maybe it's because I research this stuff, but the algorithm feeds me foraging courses and workshops pretty much every day yeah. um, on all my social media platforms from a wide range of different people around the world and specifically in the UK, because that's where I'm based. With this increase in focus on foraging, not just for plants and herbs, but specifically for mushrooms, how does that impact the ecology of an area? Um, you know, and in, in, in Britain, you know, we have, we have traditions of, uh, of gathering wild food, plants, berries, mushrooms to, to a lesser extent, I think for a range of cultural and historic reasons. It's never going to, people, you know, people can't exist on a forage diet, but it's something which um, is very nourishing from a dietary point of view, but also from, for me, like from a, from a, from a spiritual and a, and a mental health point of view, because it brings people in direct contact with nature. And occasionally you do hear, say from certain uh, landowners or organisations, push back against foraging and an attempt to frame foragers as some kind of eco-criminals. For me, this is just scaremongering and actually framing foragers as some kind of eco-criminals um, is actually doing more harm than any, any potential good because you're saying that nature is something that we should um, we should stay away from like whether it's plants you know most people in this country would have experienced things like uh, picking blackberries um, with their parents or maybe um, roasting chestnuts or playing conkers you know this is foraging it's not something that's environmentally harmful sure there are uh, best practice that people should follow when they're foraging. You got any foraging teacher or any book that you'll buy, they will teach you uh, that foraging and wild food is about having a healthy relationship with nature uh, and treading lightly and you know being respectful. Um, really, a handful of groups or organisations that push back against um, against foraging, particularly mushroom forages. And for me, it's like it's it's like it's more about political, like it's politically driven. And there's also quite clearly a um, like a racist, like xenophobic aspect to it. You know, where in certain parts of the country, maybe like Epping Forest in Essex or in the New Forest in Hampshire, 
Um, they became popular with foragers maybe like just under a decade ago. And people who do go out foraging, say, in a small group, like a family, most of those are people who, like newcomers from Eastern Europe. Um, and they're just practicing their traditional uh, practices. That's what they do with their families, like to, to enjoy themselves. Some people go fishing, some people walk their dogs. Why should you care if someone else is going out and having a good day with their family and finding some bolets in the forest? Why deny anyone that experience? It would be really interesting to see that those sorts of mindsets hopefully shift to ones of abundance, where there's more than enough for everyone who wants to engage in this. And why be so shady about it? Yeah, and in our culture, we don't have much that traditional knowledge about fungi, you know, whether it's for food, foraging, or just, just in general, the role they play in the ecosystem. So we have an amazing opportunity here with people who've moved to this country from you know, Eastern Europe, but other parts of the world too. And we could learn so much from them. So you know, I'd prefer to see like, land managers or landowners, instead of demonizing them, you know, looking at ways to celebrate fungi and these people and their cultures and you know, why are mushrooms such a big part of their culture. You know, you, you'll see like, pretty much bang on time, this time autumn every year, they'll be in certain like, media outlets press releases that are like often repeated verbatim from certain landowners and land managers describing you know foragers as you know being a threat to the forest gangs of commercial foragers which is you know it's not a phenomena that actually exists and just trying to frame mushroom foragers and mushrooms in general as something which are to be feared and you know, it's those same organisations that they're creating scaremongering about mushroom foragers, but they're also creating scaremongering about mushrooms themselves. Say, so don't touch the mushrooms. You know, I've seen this on social media and on posters um, in woodlands um, as well. You know, don't touch the mushrooms because they're poisonous. You know, there are no mushrooms in this country that are poisonous to touch. There's no more risk in touching a wild mushroom than there is touching a bit of soil or like sniffing a flower or, or hugging a tree. And I think what you're saying here is so important because we need to sort of start to change that narrative around fungi from scaremongering and fear and mushrooms are poisonous, which really like feeds into historical mycophobia. Exactly. And start changing it to um, fascination. And I think this is something that I've appreciated about what London Fungus Network and the London National Park City communicate quite a lot is like, shifting that narrative from fear to fascination. And I think one of the ways to do that is to educate people about best practice. Like, yeah, don't be scared to touch or sniff or handle a mushroom. Um, there's no harm in doing that. But w what are some of the other best practices of foraging mushrooms that we should always consider when we're wanting to go out and pick mushrooms? Yeah, I think foraging mushrooms and plants, you know, these things go hand in hand. So Best practice applies to both of them. Um, so only if you, if you are foraging and you have enough knowledge to reliably um, identify something, whether it's a plant or a mushroom, then only pick from abundant populations and leave more, more than what you find. So there's more for, for other foragers. And when I say other foragers, I mean like non-human foragers because there are a lot of insects uh, in invertebrates that rely on mushrooms and plants for their food. And often it's, you know, it's something that's self-regulating anyway, because if you find a population of bolete, chanterelles, I don't know, nettles I like to eat, 
then normally only a proportion of those will be viable eaters because they'll have ones that are too small that are not worthwhile or hard to identify and then ones that are old that have got mouldy or past their best. So, you know, anyone who does, you know, maybe who's new to the, the foraging game, just collects everything, then, they, you know, they'll find that they'll probably have to throw away or um, return back to nature. Yeah, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Not, well, not even devil's advocate, but put a hypothetical situation by you. As a brand new forager who's excited about mushrooms, I walk into the forest and I see a bullet. And I'm like, oh, that's a porcini, I think. I've heard penny buns and seps are mushrooms prize and everyone wants to get them in nature and they're very exciting. But it's a very small sep, it's a small porcini, but it's the one that I've found. And it's the first time I've ever found this mushroom and I'm so excited about it. But I probably can't eat it because it's pockmarked, it's been nibbled on by squirrels and slugs. What do I do? I mean, this, you know, this is the ultimate forager's dilemma. And you know, I've been in that situation. I found my first ever porcini. Yeah, it was quite small. Uh, it was in an urban woodland in, in East London. Um, I was so excited. Yeah, I did pick it and I, it was quite small. Um, and I just sliced it up raw and had it there. And I was hoping I'd find some others, but ended up being disappointed. But So in general, we should probably yes. just rein in our excitement Maybe we can allow foragers that first one because that's a great feeling. I, I don't. I, I think you know these attempts to try and regulate or you know to, oh, it's often framed as a kind of a balanced debate. There was an article in the Evening Standard: Should we all stop foraging? You know, this was you know obviously the you know when you have a journalist writing something, they they try and to get people's attention, they they try and take a controversial angle. Um, or pose one opposing option against another. Exactly. Like it's all or nothing. Foraging is it's only ever going to be a minority pursuit because most people just like don't have the skills for it or, or the time or the interest. I've had friends that I've taken out foraging and they've they kind of got interested in it, but then they found that there were like bugs crawling out of their leaves or mushrooms. And for a lot of people, that's just like, it's just not their vibe. You know, the idea, you know, and then someone said to me once, oh, but what if everyone went foraging? They'd be like, there'd be no plants left or mushrooms left for, for wildlife. And it's like, if everyone or a high proportion of people were foragers, then we would live in, like, our whole physical landscape and spiritual like, landscape would be totally different. And we wouldn't have so many biologically uh, dead, like, concrete landscapes be, or green deserts like garden lawns or amenity grassland everywhere. If, imagine if like your, your architect or your garden maintenance manager or your town planners exactly were, were all foragers. You'd have a much more rich range of wildflowers and weeds growing everywhere, mushrooms thriving. You know. you know, we probably wouldn't work 35, 40 hours a week either because people would be working part time and just spending all their time foraging. Um, people wouldn't be in a rush so much buying so many consumer goods and also agriculture uh, anything you buy in the shops is going to have a much like a phenomenally higher ecological impact than say if you pick um if you make your own cordial from elderflower or fry up some some mushrooms that you found in the park or you know make some nettle soup thank you so much i have been wanting to ask these questions of someone who who has a credible opinion on them and I appreciate this because those sorts of questions are questions that I get as well. 
being the kind of token mushroom girl in my family and friendship circles, the people ask me these sorts of questions and I'm never quite sure how to answer them. I'd also love to go and speak to an ecologist, for example, or someone who, uh, somebody who looks at the environmental impact of foraging, particularly in the UK, and have them on the podcast at some time. I think that would be fascinating. I feel like policy should be evidence-based. Um, and if you look at those scientific studies that have um, looked at uh, mushroom picking or mushroom harvesting, um, then they found no impact on the future yields and abundance of, of mushrooms. So there's been a few small local studies that have been done in like Mexico and other countries, but the biggest study was published in 2006 in the journal Biological Conservation, Egli et al. And it involved a 29-year field study of three forests in Switzerland. And year after year, they harvested mushrooms of all kinds, edible, non-edible, they just harvested them. And each year they recorded uh, the diversity and the abundance of, of those mushrooms. And they found that there was no relationship between mushroom harvesting and future yields and abundance. So sometimes I put this to people, but yeah, they just, there's no, there's, no, there's no response, unfortunately. So, you know, deliberately ignoring you know, this empirical evidence uh, in favour of emotive language about foragers stripping the forest floor stealing our assets, you know, these kind of things, like stealing mushrooms, you know, lead me to think that pushback against foragers, which is only by, a ha you know, a small number of, of organisations, it leads me to think, you know, it's, it's more politically motivated rather than anything to do with, uh, with conservation, which, which is a pity because they, they, they've quite successfully dominated the narrative in, in the press because it, it makes a good headline. Here's another tough question. Uh, for, most of, for most of the world, when you buy a porcini in a restaurant or a shop, it's been foraged. Yeah. What is your opinion on people who, who, who run those businesses? Uh, yeah, this is, again, one of the myths that has been perpetuated by certain land managers and, and landowners, that there are these gangs of commercial foragers going around, like, trashing the forest and picking everything, you know. Yeah. First of all, no one can pick everything, in a forest, like it's just not feasible. And if, if this does exist in Britain, it's, it's maybe it exists as an occasional phenomena, but it's certainly not something that, that is widespread, but it's becoming widespread as, as an image or a myth in, in the public imagination. So what is the motive behind people spreading these types of myths without physical evidence for it. What do, why do you think they're wanting to do that? So, I mean, just before, yeah, before we pick up on that, so you, you bought some mushrooms earlier today, some, some dried porcinis? Yes, I did. And do you know where they were from? According to the label, Poland. Exactly. So if you are, say, a retailer or a restaurant um, and you want to supply your customers with some wild mushrooms, that's what you get them from, you know, Poland, France, um, because they have like established supply chains. So, you know, is it about, you know, commercial, inverted commas, commercial foragers who are doing terrible things and making, no one can make lots of money from commercial mushroom picking in, in the UK. Like if you look at the economics of it, it, it doesn't add up. Or is it just that this is something that they can't control and can't monetize? Uh, I, think, I think it's more about having, you know, wealthy, powerful landowners who are trying to control people's activities and, and recreation. And, and I'd say anyone who is sceptical about foraging or think that it is 
you know, maybe is causing some kind of ecological risk or harm, I would say, like, come out with me one afternoon or some other foragers and, uh, you know, see what it's like. They're most likely to be very disappointed because you can go out, you know, say if you want to pick mushrooms, you know it's in mushroom seasons. Most of the time, you're not going to come back with a big basket full of pulcini or chanterelles uh, just because... It is like, you know, finding wild mushrooms is like a magical encounter. And it's, you know, most of the time it's, it's purely by chance. Thank you, Mike. Um, I'm sorry we, we, we touched on some, some touchy topics there, but um, <laughs> I, I think it's important because, I mean, like yourself, I have these questions from people and I think it's really important to have a, a good argument as to why engaging with mushrooms and plants and your natural environment is a good thing. And it's healthy and we're not eco-criminals. And I think dispelling that narrative is a huge part of moving from fear to fascination and for more people to be able to benefit from what mushrooms can do for our own health and our own mental well-being, not just from taking mushrooms, but from you know walking in the woods, for example, or just being in nature. I'd love to encourage more people to get involved with mushrooms somehow or with initiatives like the London National Park City. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to sign up to become a ranger. I've wanted to for a couple of years and now's the time when my travels are nearly over that I can actually settle down in London and, and do that. What advice do you have for people who'd like to get into mushrooms beyond just engaging with them as a hobby? People ask me this a lot. So if you want to get into mushrooms to find them wherever you live and to find out more about them, there's one simple thing you can do, which is to slow down. Wild mushrooms, wild flowers, wild plants, they're all around us wherever we live. But you know, often, and I'm like this as well, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, is that we're always in a hurry, like particularly in a big urban area where it's just like bam, 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 go, go, go. But mushrooms are all around us. It's only when we start to slow down our pace and be more, you know, you, you could call it a mindfulness practice, but when we start to become more aware, more mindful of our surroundings, then you'll start to see in what was maybe a weed growing up through a crack in the pavement. So that's actually a wildflower and it provides food for pollinators. Or there could be a mushroom in someone's front garden. I've seen at least four species of mushroom growing outside the library, by even by the bus stop. But if we're, you know, just always in a rush looking at our phones or trying to get to the next appointment, then... You know, you're never going to encounter these, these amazing um, organisms. Particularly relevant for Londoners. We walk fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you tell me what your favourite mushroom is this week and why? OK, so people ask me this and it's a very difficult question, but I like how you, you phrased it with a caveat. What's your favourite mushroom this, this week? week? Yeah, so often it is like the last mushroom that I've found. So on the table here, we have a few samples from the London Fungus Network's mobile fungarium. And you can see this thing. I mean, how would you describe this? What does it, what does it look like? Okay. Um, when I first saw it, I thought, ooh, is that a dried version of a bright red, starry flower-looking alien <laughs> egg? <laughs> so you know what? That, that is uh, a very accurate description of what, what we're looking at here. So I showed it to a couple of people in an office where I found it yesterday. And they were like, what is, what is it? Is it an octopus? Um, is it an octopus? And it looks like something that's maybe fallen from like an alien spaceship. So what we're looking at here is an Earth star fungus. 
from the genus Geastrum. I think it could be the striated earth star, but I do need to look it up in my in my field guide. What, what they are, they just look like, someone described it as a magic onion, so they just look like these round things. As they open up, it kind of splits into these triangular rays, so it almost looks like a, like a star with a tiny spore sac on top, so that's what, that's what we're looking at here. So if you want to see something cool, then Google Earth Star Fungus and you'll know what on earth we're talking about. So, so in South Africa, I was foraging recently and we have these beautiful, big, bright red stinkhorns that grow up out of the ground and look very similar to earth balls. They look like alien flowers. They literally look like Sigourney Weaver is going to like try and slice its head off and come and battle it. It's, they're so cool and they're super weird. <laughs> and when I saw this earth ball, it looked like a stinkhorn, but a South African stinkhorn, but I've never seen those in England. Um, they're also bright red, super cool. So the earth stars we have in this country are on the kind of gray to brown beige uh, spectrum. The thing about mushrooms is also their color and appearance changes with moisture and age. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have any bright colored uh, earth stars in Britain. I know in um, Texas, they have one that's orange and it's actually been officially designated as the Texas state mushroom by some uh, fungal campaigners in, uh, in America. Do we have a, a London mu state mushroom? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's a good, good question, actually. Yeah, we should, well, why don't we have a London, uh, yeah, or it, maybe every county should have its own, yeah. its own mushroom. Yeah. Just to preempt your, uh, maybe the next question about what would be the official fungus of London? So, you know, there are a lot of amazing mushrooms, but it's also, you know, I think it should maybe be a mushroom that's very common and abundant. There's one that I find a lot in my local area, and it's called the yellow stainer. Um, they look almost identical to the white button mushrooms, the Agaricus bisphorus that you get in supermarkets. So the yellow stain or Agaricus xanthodermis, um, the flesh often bruises a yellow color. And if you smell it, it has a very strong, like chemically, almost like toxic aroma. Because these are mushrooms that anyone can find in, in their local area. You don't need to go to a triple SI or an ancient woodland. Let's start to wrap up um, because I'd also love to go for a stroll. So we are going to leave London Fungus Network HQ, head out into a little urban foray, take a stroll and see what we can find in the city. Before we do that, could you tell me what's coming up in London Fungus Network's calendar? So we are now at the start of October. So autumn, winter is our busiest time of year because a lot of our events are timed with the, um, the mushroom season, so peak season for finding wild mushrooms. So uh, we've got a whole calendar of fungus forays, uh, different parts of London. Um, we've got a, a talk at the National Trust uh, Fungus Festival at Emmett's House in Sevenoaks. Uh, we've got Shroom Sunday, um, our annual uh, fungus festival, and loads of other collaborations. Oh, and a, um, a panel discussion on mycelium uh, with House of Hackney. Where can listeners find you online and find out more about these events? Yeah, so if you want to find out more about the London Fungus Network, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, or londonfungusnetwork.org forward slash events. Brilliant. Thank you, Mike. Let's go for a stroll and find some urban mushrooms. Yes. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, so we are leaving 
HQ and heading out into the urban foraging landscape. <laughs> urban mushroom hunting is one of my favourite pastimes and I love finding mushrooms in inverted commas unexpected places. So here we are like walking into this industrial estate. So there's a lot of concrete and asphalt and like buildings and all the green space is kind of neglected. Um, oh, oh. Oh, oh, hey, look at that. Whoa, there's tons oh, of Oh, what have we got here? What have we got here? <laughs> there's loads of them. Isn't this the agaricus? Yeah, okay. So this looks like an agaricus because it has a white cap and a white stipe. It's growing in grass. So here's one that's already kind of been detached from the stipes. So you can see the gills aren't pink or brown like you would get on a mature agaricus mushroom. So this is a leuco agaricus, leucothetes or white dappling. You can find fungi anywhere. They're resilient organisms. There's a big flush of them just on this tiny little grass verge. So you give fungi, you give nature an opportunity and it will find a way. So that, that was a nice flush. I mean, there's a lot of litter here too, obviously. So this is something called a yellow stainer or an agaricus xanthodermis. So it is a close relative of the agaricus bisphorus, the commonly cultivated white mushroom. Um, but it stains yellow and it absolutely stinks, which is another good way of identifying it. It's not good for you if you eat it. It'll make you throw up and go to the toilet. But it's still um, a pleasure to find these mushrooms in an urban area. So right next to those yellow stainers, so something else has been popping up here. It, uh, they're kind of white and black uh, grown at the base of this tree. So I think what we've got here is a type of ink cap, maybe a pleated ink cap. Um, and you can see them in all different stages of growth here in um, birth, life and decay. And they're called ink caps because they deliquesce, which was a fancy way of saying that they, uh, they auto-digest and they turn into this black liquid that you can get on your hands. Yeah, and that's how they release their spores. Ooh, what's that? Oh, okay, like, we've hit the fungal jackpot here. Um, so you can see on this mouldy old twig, Mouldy old twigs and branches are great places to find fungi. So uh, there are these yellow, orangey, pinky uh, dots. And this is something called coral spot or uh, Nectrina cinnabarina, if I remember rightly. And this is an ascomycete fungi, which unlike the yellow stainers or the ink caps, uh, instead of releasing their spores by dropping them from the gills, they, they shoot them out into the air. This is one of my favourite urban mushroom hunting locations. So we're between a bus stop and an industrial estate. And this is like an absolute monster. Uh, I mean, this has grown since the last time I was here. Someone has actually taken this off. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. So this is, a, and, and there are, there is soil, like insects falling on my hands all over the place. So some people might look at this and say it's a dead tree. And it's kind of on its way out, but it's given so much life through the fungal decay to all these other organisms. I mean, this is, I'm gonna put this down in a moment, but it's absolutely teeming with wildlife. 
Check out runningwithmushrooms.com for more episodes, as well as blog posts about the tour and articles diving into my microcultural insights. In the show notes, you'll find links to reach out, subscribe, and support my guests. I hope that you're inspired to geek out about mushrooms with me, and thank you for joining the Mushroom Tour.